Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Uh, it is me. I am not used to this new open. So coral. Uh, ba, ba, ba. All right. So I am back from the longest vacation of my life. It was so delightful. I realize what I've been doing wrong in life is not taking two weeks. I've been taking this little three day and five day vacations. And it's like as soon as you just kind of it's kind of like filling up the tank with a quarter tank of gas or something. You're not really up you know, full th- uh, the sleep. The walking, the just playing around with kids on the on the deck with bubbles. It's a lot of bubbles in my life. And the food, of course. It was it's interesting. I used to be a restaurant cook out there and I was there for the the first realization wave that we are overfishing the oceans. And so I saw, you know, the swordfish get smaller and smaller and then just basically the the frenzy about the ban and whether that was right or wrong and then just over and the fisher the swordfish fishery is one of the great success stories i've been following it on the internet since that time you know the decade of no fishing and then uh, bringing it back and now it is much more managed uh, as apparently it needed to be i think that we as a culture have not grappled with how good we are at stuff we want to find fish with all the technology we have today. We'll find every last one. We will target them and get them. And that is not in our long-term interest. Anyway, so now things are much more regulated and the swordfish are back. And I got a piece of swordfish, my friends. It was like maybe two inches thick, 12 inches, maybe 14 inches across. This cross-section of swordfish. One of the most beautiful, beautiful things I've eaten in my life. And, uh, and it felt really good being on the other side of the crisis. Now, I always think about people. We can solve crises if we decide to do it, if we're not in denial, if we're not fighting about it. Anything we kind of put our minds together to do as a society will be done. And it just made this beautiful, just tender, so fresh piece of swordfish even better because the problem was solved. I saw the I saw the. The bad part, I saw the almost disappear. I saw the comeback. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. And now I am here full of vim and vigor and energy. And I have a spectacular guest today. It is Sean Sherman. You know him. He's been on the show before. He is just back from winning a James Beard Award as the most important person in the world, I think they said. <laughs> anyway, he is a beautiful cookbook. He's been the intellectual force behind really understanding Native American foodways, what was lost culinarily, what was lost nutritionally, what was lost culturally by Native American genocide. It's a hard thing to talk about. I did not, when I started being a food writer, I never thought Native American genocide was going to be like a happy topic we talk about when we talk about choke cherries. But there it is. You got to get comfortable with it. It's a thing that that nearly happened. Um, and And Sean Sherman has done so much from his uh, beginnings as a Minneapolis line cook to really 
bring Native American foodways back into uh, view for people that did not know about them. All right, so he's got a a website now, NATIFs, Natifs, and he's working on bringing uh, all kinds of things. And so I'm really just really want to talk about the the spectacular stuff that Sean Sherman is doing. As always, you got questions? Text me six five one nine eight nine nine two two six. All right, Mr. Sean Sherman, thanks for coming in today. I know you got a busy day cooking for your family. Yeah, thanks for having me. He's got a, da- a, a daughter graduated from college. Yay, congratulations. <laughs> Nothing like a graduation party. So that's awesome. Um, but tell me, tell me what you're up to. So you're fundraising right now for something big. Yeah, um, we had you know moved on from the food truck to Tonka truck a couple of years ago. We sold that to Wide Earth Reservation. Okay, so this was really interesting. You did a food truck that was going to bring just very simple but wonderful Native American foods. It was called the Tatanka truck, and it was basically like a wild rice bowl with a seared walleye on top, like things that might be familiar to Minnesotans, but uh, just. Just so well done. So simple. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, those flavors were just the indigenous flavors of this region. So you couldn't get more Minnesotan than the flavors we were using with walleye and rabbit and venison and bison and all the wild berries and wild greens and wild rice and maple and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, And we've been catering for quite a few years, too, ever since I started the business in 2014. But um, we also had our site set on opening up a restaurant. So we had done the Kickstarter a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, we're still working with the waterworks project, which is opening down by the river, which was, okay. So people don't know, this is going to be a big landmark. So right where St. Anthony falls are, do we have a different name for those two? St. Anthony falls, or we still go with St. Anthony falls. Uh, the original Dakota name is Owamni Yamni. It means place of swirling water. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, right over there, there used to be a restaurant there a bazillion years ago before my time. Uh, Kikugawa, I believe, was right. And the, or Fujia. Fujia. Oh, Fujia. no, yeah, Fujia. Fujia yeah. was right there on the water. And the city of Minneapolis is doing a massive redesign. It's going to be called Waterworks. And you you are going to be the anchor tenant. Yeah, so we will be the tenant there. And it was actually supposed to be open this year. But because of that massive project and a lot of red tape, it's uh, pushed out until next year at this moment. So Yeah, so it's going to be something like sea salt if people are familiar with that so a park pavilion restaurant but yours will be more deluxe it'll be year-round it'll have places for private events yeah and of course with the indigenous perspective to really bring back the history of that indigenous waterfront which is really important to the dakota people yeah it was a meeting place and a and a sacred place it was a yeah there's quite a bit of history right there so really excited to be able to share that perspective with anybody who wants to come and learn about it I think it'll be a huge tourist draw. That's probably not it'll be, it'll be beautiful. <laughs> your first thought, but yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> it'll be busy. <laughs> it'll be busy. Yeah. Not only is it a place of natural beauty, but it's a it's a hugely important uh, site. I think that that kind of gets short shrifted when we talk about Minneapolis. We never talk about it as sort of a, a, a holy site for five state region or you know whatever it was. Like it was a hugely important. A spiritual place. Yeah, definitely. So we're excited about that. Um, and in the meantime, we had set up a nonprofit called Natifs, N-A-T-I-F-S dot org, which is an acronym for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And what we're doing with that is we're opening up a restaurant here, um, hopefully early this next year, um, and it's called Indigenous Food Lab. 
Indigenous Food Lab. And so you're hoping to do this in Northeast. You have a We well, we something. have our fingers crossed. We've been uh, working with a project in Northeast and looking at this really beautiful space and we're hoping that we can tie this together and finalize it in the next few weeks. Um, so we can really public, publicly broadcast it and get it out there and have a set timeline. But, you know, we're really excited. So um, Indigenous Food Lab is actually a, a part of our 501c3. So it's a nonprofit restaurant we designed to be a training and educational center to focus on Indigenous education. So, And when you think about what is Indigenous education, it's basically um, thousands of generations of knowledge that had been handed down how to live sustainably utilizing primarily plants and animals of your region. So it's a lot of really valuable food-centered knowledge um, that we're hoping to become a resource for and share um, globally. Yeah, when I think about, uh, you know, all the knowledge that was lost, I think about Europe, you know, people in Europe went and they tasted every little thing and they figured out how to use it. They were like, oh, caper caper buds. That's a perfect example. Yeah, this is random shrub. But if you get the buds in the spring and then you pickle them, that's an important flavor. You know, a bazillion restaurants were launched. Uh, but there was equivalent knowledge and experience in North America – and yet, somehow we just we just blew past it. We're like, oh, we keep you know the 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 colonial settlers came. They're like, we're gonna take everything and bring capers along, and who cares what is on the what's here? And a new ingredient of good ingredient can change everything. I have watched in my generation as choke cherries went from being you know something that nobody knew about to something chefs talk about a lot because it's such a great flavor. And it grows all over the place. Yeah. You know, we really focus on in local and regional indigenous foods. So, so no matter where we are, whether we're here in Minneapolis or in the Southwest or doing a dinner in Manhattan for the James Beard House, you know, we can focus on extremely regional foods, use, utilizing our knowledge um, of indigenous foods of every single region. You know, so what people were growing agriculturally, what people were harvesting, what kind of animals around, the food techniques that people are utilizing, food preservation, and being able to play with a massive amount of flavors to come up with regional indigenous foods pretty much anywhere you choose. And so you're so good at this sort of uh, getting into different networks and finding out uh, – because you, you've gone to to Scandinavia and talked to the Nordic Food Lab people. And, you know, Nor the Nordic countries, it's kind of a little place compared to the United States where we've got – you know the foods of Tucson are different than the foods of uh, Maine. You know, so it's uh, – uh, you've got so many different regions to, to look at. All right, so I – um, so the, if you can get the money together to, through natives and ATIFS, you're going to basically uh, hopscotch yourself. You were going to open the first Native American restaurant in the country on the waterworks, but now it, in downtown Minneapolis. But now that that's uh, delayed because of construction, the city construction problems, you may open the first restaurants of that kind in northeast Minneapolis. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> if we can get it together. And, um, and the Indigenous Food Lab is such a fun model because it's a nonprofit restaurant. We're utilizing it so people can come and take classes on Indigenous food system education. And we're going to be developing a lot of curriculum around Indigenous food education. But people can also work in the restaurant with us to gain some of these skills. And our goal is to work with the tribal communities nearby us around the state and region and help them to develop something for their community so they have at least one access point to healthy indigenous foods to kind of help um, push people away from uh, being completely dependent on commodity foods and gas station foods and to really be impactful for a lot of the health issues that come up because of those food access issues. 
Um, and our goal is to eventually open up indigenous food labs in cities all over North America, throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska. So it could be in Seattle, Denver, Boston, Chicago, each one being a regional center point for education and, and communication and networking and support um, to help develop um, more and more. Because we, we imagine a future where you can drive across North America, experience indigenous foods in all these different regions and see how much amazing diversity we have across North America instead of the same hamburger and Coca-Cola and hoppy beer everywhere you stop. Ah, that is right up my wheelhouse. So you, uh, so if this one flies in Northeast, if you can get this off the ground, this will be the prototype for for bringing native food flavors and native and bringing native communities sort of in closer contact with their traditional foods. Yeah, um, it's going to help revitalize um, the foods, um, but not only that, to really bring back a stronger sense of health and culture when it comes down to it, because all these foods happen to be extremely nutritional. Cutting out colonial ingredients like dairy, wheat flour, cane sugar especially, you know, makes the food so much healthier because you drop that glycemic scale so low. It's just much more clean burning energy food. And we see this not only being valuable in North America, but a roadmap to help out indigenous communities pretty much anywhere around the world, especially communities that were suffering from colonial assimilation and ethnic cleansing like happened here in the U.S. Yeah. Flour, sugar. <laughs> you eat less of it. Uh, wild rice is certainly one of the healthiest things that you can eat. I mean, it's just uh, all that fiber. And it, and then when you're buying good Minnesota wild rice, hand harvested, I get, uh, I get mine from the White Earth Reservation a lot of times because they have that native foods uh, process. And then you're supporting People keeping clean water going and keeping space for birds and space for fish. Uh, We're going to take a little break here. We're going to talk some more with Sean Sherman about everything he's doing at Natifs, N-A-T-I-F-S. And, um, you know, you can pop on over there and donate if you want to see the first one. If you're in Northeast and you're like, I need this to happen now, faster, you pop on over there, donate some money. I think that this is probably the most exciting thing happening in American food right now, aside from couple other sustainability things, such as bringing back swordfish uh, that needed to happen. All right, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back with a little more of Sean Sherman. You got any questions, text us, 651-989-9226. Uh, Dara here. All right, I've been talking to Sean Sherman, one of the most important chefs in town. What was the massive award that James Beard House gave you this year? It was a I got the Leadership Award. So. Leadership Award. Yeah, That's so. one of those Lifetime Achievement Awards. You're you're not old enough, I don't think, <laughs> to get that. Yeah, it was a big award, and we're super grateful. And you know, and it's in line with people like Michael Pollan and Michelle Obama, who also received that same award. Oh, does that mean that I have two degrees of separation of Michelle Obama now? I'm talking to you, and you got the same award she got. It's all working out for me. Okay, so I got a lovely text. Uh, Someone who loves you. I, I love you, too. You're amazing. Um, and ask you about your video that you made at the James Beard House, a car commercial. Yep, that was a funny one. We almost didn't take that. It was a, a brand called Genesis, which was a luxury brand, a Hyundai. And the only reason we did it was because they allowed us to have our logo for Indigenous Food Lab and talk about our mission and our story. Um, And they paid us, which we just applied to the nonprofit. So it was a win-win for us um, to get to their network also. That's so cool. More brands should get on this. You're a brand manager. You listen and uh, let's make this happen. I really – I. It's so important to have a diversity of food, uh, food coming from different places because then people are protecting the land and looking out for it. Um, farmers are 
you know, just in the crosshairs of so much pressure, you know, pressure to buy bazillion dollar tractors, pressure to constantly get the prices down and prices down. And I, I, what I'm happy about in the last couple of years is like more oats in the system. People are eating more oats. Like it's a, such a small thing, but anytime you get another product in the system, another, another chain of money making, it just, it is less, it provides, just pushes on everyone less. You end up with less pressure, more more diversity of income streams, and and that's certainly what would come out of this. All right, um, I've got a question. Uh, someone who's who's traveled extensively and tried indigenous foods, and without regular farmers and providers, there's no way for it to be affordable. How do you? How do you? You know, get money into these systems. It's a chicken egg problem, right? If a little no- bit. You know, so first off, I was just showing people how accessible indigenous foods were still were today by utilizing a lot of indigenous agricultural products like cool beans and corns and squash and sunflower seeds and all these heirloom seed products that are out there. But also literally looking at all of the plant diversity that's around us in our separate regions and uh, really utilizing that, you know. So indigenous peoples use hundreds of varieties of plants um, because they've had thousands of generations of knowledge to be able to share about how to do that and when to harvest, which parts to harvest which parts to eat, which parts to use for medicine, which parts to use for crafting, right? So we, as uh, training and education, we saw as the most important thing, which is why we designed our, our nonprofit, because we want to um, help um, bridge that gap with indigenous communities, um, showing them how to utilize these wild indigenous plants around them, and even some of the invasive species that are now out there that are still edible and medicinal, if you look at it through an indigenous perspective and are, and are usable. Um, and we really believe in permaculture um, design and community-based food systems. So if we can get people to just stop growing lawns, which is a waste of space, right, and just put food everywhere possible, we can landscape any way we want to. And especially communities that suffer from so much food access, we could just be putting food all over the ground everywhere. But you need a kitchen to really process that and people trained to do that, which is why we're trying to put these kitchens in these communities all over the place. So we can really turn this around and we can also help link people up with the seeds and the knowledge and the training to be able to grow community gardens that could grow quite a bit of staples for those communities too. Um, And working with um, indigenous food producers out there that um, are able to grow on a much larger scale and supporting them and helping to develop more indigenous food producers in the future. So it's basically just taking those steps forward um, and not being afraid of it, you know, is what it comes down to. Yeah. Not being afraid is important. A chicken egg, it's a chicken egg problem. If you don't create the market, then you don't have the the products, and then the products are very expensive because they're elite and unusual. Um, but when you, I don't know, when you have a, a, when everybody understands that you can eat, you know, little premature elm tree seed seed packets. So and, much food out there. Yeah, then then all of a sudden, you know, everyone can get them, and they're they're not expensive anymore because they're not. It's not like we're talking about. Uh, gold. There's, you know, just a little bit of gold under the ground somewhere. We got to go get it. it there's <laughs> so much uh, lambs quarters, for example. Oh, yeah. it's just- so much underutilized food just sitting right outside, no matter where you look, you know. So it's a matter of keeping our natural resources and our environment clean and realizing how much food and how much plants are valuable for us as humans, you know. And we think about how humans probably survive off of less than 30 plant species because they're buying the exact same stuff every single time they go to the store, you know, tomatoes, and we don't strawberry. Even, we don't even know it. You don't know you're buying like 
12, like corn 12 ways. <laughs> totally. Um, and, but, you know, by introducing an indigenous perspective, you see so much more plants that we could be utilizing and it's all over the place, you know. So um, we see a, such a bright future with being able to implement um, this perspective out there into the mainstream and just getting people to think more about land space. And we really believe in that permaculture design of just putting food everywhere. Yeah, speaking of putting food everywhere, I got a text from a listener who says, got some trees at the edge of the woods with small red cherry berries kind of things on them. When we were kids, we used to have sim- trees similar to this called pin cherries. What's the best way to figure out what they are? Um, and uh, that she absolutely loves, or he absolutely loves, choke cherry tree bushes. Too bad it's not more of them growing like there used to be when... You were a kid. Okay, so I think the best way to figure out what you got growing is to take a cutting over to the University of Minnesota Master Gardeners. They're always setting up places, and they're at the Arboretum, and they can tell you in a heartbeat. And also, if you want a choke cherry tree, go get one. They love living here, and they don't cost too much. I got one at the Friends plant sale two or three years ago. I put it in this ridiculous corner, underused corner of my yard that was just kind of in the dark by a fence and by the garbage cans. I mean, it's not like a premium site. I put a choke cherry tree in there, and I put raspberries all over the bottom. And I will tell you what, it is a tiny four-foot square wildlife sanctuary. Everybody loves living in there. You got bunnies and birds and everything, and it just it just makes me happy. They took a couple of years, but now it's big old robust tree. I'm so happy. Go put one in. It'll be good for many generations, and uh, you'll be doing a good deed. Yeah, and um, I've been using this uh, plant uh, app that to just take a picture of the plant, and it immediately gets it back to you. What? Uh, I mean, it's like 95% accurate pretty much every time I've tried it so What's far. it called? Uh, it's called Picture This. Picture and this. I literally just take that. a snap of a flower or a leaf or whatever, and it just like does this database search and just gives you like maybe three options to choose from. And Ooh. it's just been so accurate. So it's been pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, try that out. Try that out. Picture this. I'm going to try that out. Yeah, I am. Cool. I've been on a lifelong mission to, or not lifelong, the last five years or so, trying to figure out what trees are. It's so hard. <laughs> I finally feel that I have identified hackberry. And you think, oh, you're a moron. How those are easy to find, but they're. I, it took me a while. It took me a while. Uh, okay, so people can find you at natifs.org. You're a brand manager. You should get Sean to do a silly car commercial and throw some money into the kitty, so we can get a uh, a restaurant going. If you got an extra twenty bucks and you want to trying to change the world in a positive direction, I will say I have seen the world change through food in a positive direction in my lifetime. It is like a lot of good things are happening. Yeah. So yeah. people are farming oysters. Uh, swordfish are back. We're still fighting a bunch of battles with pollution. Um, but the organic food system, I remember when people were bickering about, you know, why did they have to be called organic? They were the way people were doing things for, you know, 45,000 years. And then suddenly the new petrochemicals come in and they should get a chemical food label. We should just be – anyway, that war was lost. But the organic food system is robust and meaningful now. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, for indigenous peoples, they were always organic. So, Well, yes. <laughs> Everything was organic up until, you know, some 20 years after World War II. And, and people act like it's a new thing or a novel thing. All of our heroes with their big working brains, you know, from Homer to, uh, you know, J- J- Thomas Jefferson, they all ate organic purely at all times. That's why they're so healthy. I, my kid picked up a can of... Um, 
Campbell's soup from the from Target. We were in there getting things, and and I was like, oh, I love that label. Yeah, let's get that. I got it home. It was just all corn syrup. It was like the second ingredient. It was like, you know what? You can't feed a growing brain on corn syrup. You need, you know, our prior generations. They were having ripe tomatoes. That's what tomato soup was made of. It was full of lycopene and other, you know, uh, all antioxidants, good stuff. This is full of nothing, just uh, just corn syrup. Yeah, and that's a big push as to why we're trying to help influence indigenous communities and work uh, get them to work of getting off of the commodity food program, which is all those canned and overprocessed foods, which is high in bad sugars, high in salts and sodium, um, and just really bad for you. Because the problem with that whole program has never been a nutritional program. You know, it started as a farm supplement program in the '30s to help supplement to help the U.S. create a surplus of foods for military hospitals, um, school systems, and all of these Native American treaties that they had signed all across North America and to help support all of these uh, family farmers that were immigrants that they had placed all over the U.S., basically, um, which this whole program has just been broken because all those family farms are bought out by corporations and all of the indigenous peoples. We can see what happens to entire communities if they if they are surviving solely off of commodity foods for a few generations and what happens to a group of people. So you see upwards to 60% type 2 diabetes, massive rates of obesity and heart disease, and all these foodborne illnesses being forced to survive on a food that wasn't natural to them. You know, So we're trying to do everything we can to change that, and anybody can benefit from this knowledge of indigenous foods overall. Yeah, you really can. We can, we can, have, a, we can have better tasting food. We can have a cleaner environment. We can uh, undo some wrongs of the past. We can do it all. With wild rice and choke cherries and having a good dinner. I don't know why people don't. Why? What's the holdup? People get on this. All right, Sean, I can't thank you enough for giving me part of your Saturday morning. Sure. Um, everybody pile on to natifs.org, N-A-T-I-F-S.org, and uh, throw some love that way. And we'll get this restaurant going in Northeast. And maybe I'll have even a, a public announcement in a yeah, couple of weeks. I hope so. Cross uh, our fingers. Be good news for... Good news for Minnesota. I'm very proud of all the work we've done in this. We are the leaders, national leaders, because of you. It's awesome. All right. Thanks, Sean Sherman. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. We're going to come back. We're going to have a robust Ask Me Anything segment. You got questions about anything. Gin, corn syrup, you name it. 651-989-9226. And I will answer them all when we come back. Dara here. All right. I got an angry text. Uh, listening to your comment of Campbell's soup label, so I picked one up and read the label. There's no corn syrup. You're full of fake news, my friend. I'll get you some reading glasses. Okay, so I I was so like I got so scared. I don't want to be accused of fake news. Journalists hate that, and I may be on the happy 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 realm of journalism, but I am you know somewhere in that mix in that rainbow. So I pulled up the Campbell's website, Campbell's Condensed Tomato Soup from Campbell's.com, straight from the horse's mouth as it is. The ingredients on Campbell's Tomato Soup, number one, tomato puree, number two, high fructose corn syrup. It's right there. How do you not see that? My friend, high fructose corn syrup is the second ingredient straight from that. And so... What is, you know, why do we eat ripe tomatoes? What is the point of that? Well, that your body is telling you that that is a food that's at its optimal state of giving you nutrition. It is it has the most 
antioxidants and anthocyanins and all the stuff your body can use. And when you replace it with sugar, you replace it with just straight up corn syrup, um, high fructose corn syrup, the number two ingredient, your body gets tricked in the short term of thinking, I am eating a ripe fruit, but you're not eating a ripe fruit. Yeah, I will I will go down the road of tomato as a fruit, too. It's very stupid. Uh, but all of the uh, – we kind of tend to think of vegetables as a different category of fruits. But a lot of things that we eat are actually, botanically speaking, fruits. So tomatoes are fruits, uh, cucumbers, if you can believe it, a bunch of those things. So, yes. And so that I – don't, I don't even know why people get into this knee-jerk – want to fight about things and want to use that culture war uh, fighting language about fake news. But, um, you know, you want to fight with me about what it actually says on a ingredient label. I don't know how we could ever come to any kind of common society uh, because that's what it actually does say. All right. I got a question uh, welcoming me back from vacation. Thank you very much. And asking me about the best fish in town. All right. Well, it's I think very clearly it's at Octo Fish Bar. It's that place in Lower Town, St. Paul. It's right at the head of the farmer's market. Uh, they've got kind of two components to it. It's the Almanac Fish Market, so just a straight-up case of fish, and then the sit-down restaurant part, which is called Octo. It's a very interwoven with a fish importer called the Fish Guys, and you can literally just you know grab your seat at the bar, order yourself a beer, and then walk over to the fish market, buy yourself a whole fish, a big chunk of fish, whatever you see that looks good, and then they will just take it back to the kitchen. Oh, sorry, you pay retail, and then you hand it to your bartender or whatever, you know, with your literally your white paper wrap package, and they run it back to the kitchen. And for I think it's a dollar, two dollars a pound, something like that, very inexpensive. Uh, they will cook it all up and make it delicious, and that's. That's like your waterfront experience. Um, and so I, I just love it to bits. Octo Fish Bar. I feel like a lot of people don't make the pilgrimage to St. Paul. They feel like it's far away. That place is a gem and a treat. All right. I got a question talking about, um, oh, I got an apology <laughs> from the texture. Well, thank you. They have Campbell's Homestyle Chicken Noodle Soup for cold season, and there's no high fructose corn syrup. All right. Well, thank you for an apology. It takes a lot of character in this polarized day and age to say you're sorry. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Maybe we can build a society of, of, uh, of uh, I don't know, based on the facts and based on real stuff and based on trying to come to agreements. Your text gives me hope. We can do this. All right. I got a question about the most Minnesotan food. I've got wild rice on my brain because we've been talking about wild rice. Uh, so that is definitely one of them. The clean lakes, the healthy, that's just like a, it's a, you know, the canary in the coal mine, that thing. Well, wild rice is the opposite of that. It tells you that there's an ecosystem that's functioning healthily and it's a beautiful, a beautiful Minnesota lake ringed with pine trees, right? That's what you think of. So wild rice. But then also I'm going to give my my tie for first place like a Kemp's ice cream bucket of potato salad that you're bringing to a potluck. That is, those are the two most Minnesotan foods. On the one hand, you got a Kemp's giant sherbet bucket full of potato salad. And the other hand, it's wild rice. 
then that's what I got. You got more questions for me? We'll come back in a minute. We can fight over label ingredients. We can come to a, a great reconciliation at the end of us that gives us hope for the future of America. All those things can happen when you text me at 651-989-9226. Oh, all right. I just remembered another funny thing to tell you about vacation. Jonathan and I were talking off air about uh, pickles that he does not like, and I love pickles. And here's how much I love pickles. Jonathan, you can tell the people why you hate them. I don't know. That's on you. I've, I've, I've said this before because Jordana Green and I got into an argument about this, and she's a, she's a huge pickle fan, and I'm, I just don't like them. And it's, I think it's more the sensory thing of the brine. I think the brine and the vinegar just gets to me in it. And before I can even think of putting one of them in my mouth, I just, no. I can eat cucumbers. Cucumbers are fine for me. But the, the, the brine of the pickles just gets to me. It does. Yeah, you 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 throw them aside. I'll I'll go retrieve them. I love them. They're the, they're the best. Okay, so I'm at. Uh, they have these lovely farm stands, and and when I was on vacation, that's what vacations are for, right? And I bought this jar of pickles. Somebody named Kyle made pickles. They were delicious. They were really fresh, and I wanted them so bad that I took a pickle out of the jar, you know, just a mason jar or whatever, and ate it before I got. And I loaded all the groceries in the back of the car. I drove home. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't get the jar lid on all the way. All the brine spilled out, soaked into the rental car. For the rest of the journey, we just called it the pickle mobile because it was smelling like pickles. This is a ridiculous way to live, except that the rental car had smelled really bad before because it was kind of smoke saturated. You ever get one and it just somebody's been smoking in there and it doesn't smell good? Anyway, so the pickles completely remove the, 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 the old uh, Marlboro smell. So that was a good <laughs> That was a good thing. I'm uh, just imagining the smell of of pickles and Paul Malls and it, just something like that. Just, that was my just, childhood, my friend. Oh That's my, my childhood. Don't t- trash talk about pickles and Paul Malls. That may be my memoir. All right, so <laughs> my dear Grandma Kay was a many pack a day Paul Mall smoker, uh, and it was not good for her. So don't do that. But it was. Uh, eh, I loved her very much. All right, I got a question about. I have an article I have up at MSPMag.com about this new level of. Um, hops thing that's happening in Minnesota where this Mighty Axe Hops Farm, we've had we've had him on the show before, but anyway, he's rebranded all of these local hops under new names to really talk about how Minnesota terroir is different. And so, um, you know, he's doing things like taking Cascade hops, but here he's now calling them Julius because he maintains that in Minnesota – uh, Cascade hops come out tasting like an orange Julius, like from the mall. And I got a question: Is that relevant? Like, is that a real thing, or is that just marketing? Um, you know, I I'm all for it. It may just be marketing, but so much good stuff in life is marketing. <laughs> you know, where, where's the where's the differentiation? But it, I do believe that things grown in different places taste differently because of the way something about the soil and the light and the uh, the wind, everything comes together, and that's why uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, for instance, tastes limey and tropical, and French Sauvignon Blanc tastes mineral and silky and lemony. And it's a definite, you know, you taste the two side by side, you can't believe it's the same product, and that's just what wine people pretentiously call terroir. But there's no better word for it, so you got to use the word terroir. Anyway, so I do think that... 
it's possible that Minnesota hops taste, you know, these conventional popular kinds of hops taste different when they're grown in Minnesota. And so that's my long answer. And so that's why I do think if you want to read all about what Mighty Axe is doing and how we're going to have Minnesota hops that make beers taste like orange Julius's, um, check that out at mspmag.com. All right. I got another question about party wine. Somebody who's looking to do an affordable party, um, but good. Well, that is the dream, isn't it? Um, so I would say, you know, European whites are always – they don't irrigate them. It's against the law to do that, and that cuts down the cost. They've been making them for thousands of years. Oh, um, So just random European, you know, uh, Portuguese vino verde, for instance. That's a great uh, thing to buy by the case. I, you know, I do my thing at Liquor Boy. I'm out there, and I help them pick out wines. And we found a $6 vino verde called Pluma. That was just so good, and it just tastes great, chilled. It's like a – alcoholic, dry, mineral, uh, you know, soda or something. It's just so uh, so drinkable and uh, and, a, and a real wine underneath it all. Um, so not too sweet or anything. When I say soda, I just kind of mean like it's something you can kind of drink a big glass of in the hot sun and feel good about that. Unlike, um, you know, a very inky Cabernet. That's a terrible thing to drink in the hot sun. All right, so what is happening next week on this show? I will have Gavin Kaysen. He's out there at Belcour. He's got all the press. He's running a couple different restaurants. Um, and he will be talking to us about opening the smallest restaurant in Minnesota that's not Al's Breakfast uh, and, and how that has been going for him. So he's on the show next week. Until um, then, I hope you enjoy every minute of this heat wave. Make some, make some ginger iced tea and keep it on uh, – Keep it in your fridge, and I will meet you here next week on Off the Menu.